The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. How do you start all over again? I know in my heart that I'm an advocate and I know in my heart that I need to use this brain and this mouth for something good. I just don't know where to begin and how to start. In today's episode, our listener Jessica shares a moment of inflection. After practicing law for 22 years, she was feeling like it was time for something new, a different way to be of service and tap her advocate spark it up. But there were layers that we need to unpeel to get to the deeper heart of her question. And on deck with me this week from the Sparked Brain Trust to help tease out what really matters and share insights and ideas is founder of Parachute Executive Coaching, acclaimed executive coach advisor to senior leaders for more than two decades, and the author of two great books, The Accidental Alpha Woman and The Complete Executive, Karen Wright. Quick note, you'll hear us mention something that we call the sparkotypes in conversation. So what is that? Well, it turns out we all have a unique imprint for work that makes us come alive. This is your sparkotype. And when you discover yours, everything, your entire work life and even parts of your personal life and relationships, they begin to make sense on a different level. And until you know yours, well, you're kind of fumbling in the dark. And just like today's listener did, you can discover your Sparkotype for free at sparkotype.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. Now, on to Jessica's story and question. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. Hi, my name is Jessica. My pronouns are she and her. I am 47 years old and I put myself through college and law school long ago because that's what you know, kids of immigrants did. And I never really had a chance to think about what I wanted to do in my life. At one point, I thought of working for the DA, but I had student loans. So I basically sold my brain to the highest bidder. And I was a lawyer in finance and tax for 22 years until it became untenable, just physically, mentally, and everything else. And I realized that I was at the point in my life where the money didn't matter anymore. And I was the first person in my life, in my family, who actually was in a position to choose what they wanted to do for a living. And so I left my firm in 2018 and I took time off. I've studied a bunch of well-being modalities. I teach yoga. I volunteer with uh, survivors of domestic violence. I do a bunch of different things. And I started doing executive coaching and got certified in that. And then the pandemic hit and people needed therapy, not really coaching. Um, I even had a podcast for a while, which was pretty awesome. However, I'm at the point where I really need to regroup and start all over again and was originally scheduled to move to Italy and volunteer with migrants and teach English. But, you know, here we go, COVID blowing things up as usual. But I'm really trying to regroup because I want to use this brain and this big mouth for good. And I thought it's hilarious that my uh, spark type is advocate and um, essentialist. And I want to make sure that I leave this world a better place 
then I found it. And I've been through many, many experiences with work and just life and growing up the way I did. And even being um, someone who experienced domestic violence themselves, you know, it was one of the areas I was looking at. However, for someone like me, my background is in corporate finance. And if I want to move into a more advocacy role, I don't know how to do that starting from scratch. Um, I can be the oldest intern in the world. And I'm happy to do that. But I don't have a social work background. I don't have a psychological back psychology background or anything like that. So how do you start all over again? I know in my heart that I'm an advocate. And I know in my heart that I need to use this brain and this mouth for something good. I just don't know where to begin and how to start completely from scratch again. So that's my specific question. How do you start from the bottom when you've been at the top? Thanks so much for offering to do this. And I'm looking forward to the podcast. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So such an interesting moment, circumstance, and question. Certainly something that I think a lot of people are grappling with these days. There are a whole bunch of things that jumped out at me. I think there are different points that we could probably jump into, and maybe we'll, we'll see how many of those we can explore I'm curious, was there any one thing that sort of like really jumped out at you immediately? Well, she self-refers as uh, having a big mouth and a big brain. <laughs> and I love that. And I get a picture of who, like, how she shows up. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting because she she described herself in a lot of really interesting ways. One was that, like, I, I want to use this big mouth and big brain for something. Uh, a kid of immigrants mm -hmm. who, you know, like a, you know, the first person to sort of like reach the point of education and career in her family. And so she says, I was the first person in my life, in my family, who actually was in a position to choose what they wanted to do for a living. Yes. Which on the one hand can be this incredible blessing for people, but on the other hand can also drop you into this space of just like a sense of profound weightiness and burden. Like I'm choosing not just for me, but I'm choosing for the generations that have come before me and from my ancestors. And like, I am this in this, I've worked for 
decades to, to land in this privileged position. And I feel like you can put so much pressure on yourself to, quote, choose right at that moment. I think it's very easy to put pressure on yourself. I think it's also really common that being a child of immigrants, there are a lot of expectations on you, which speaks to the weightiness that you mentioned. I also know, and I hear this from clients frequently, being a very smart, very hardworking person gives you all the choices in the world. And that's a huge problem. You know, if you had really dominant skills in a particular area or limitations of some sort, your choices would be, it would be a shorter list. And so it might not feel as overwhelming. Yeah. No, it's a, the, like the classic paradox of choice. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, on the one hand, it's fantastic. On the other hand, it's awful. Agreed. Yes. And you can't share that latter part with too many people because there's not a whole lot of sympathy generally when people look at you from the outside and you're like, you've been so successful. You know, like you're in this amazing point in your life where literally you can make a decision without reference to whether it really needs to support a particular lifestyle. Um, you're so blessed. And yet inside, you say, yes, and you know, there's still a really big internal struggle. And I think it's important not to minimize that and not to minimize sort of like the moment that you're in just because from the outside looking in, others may perceive you being in this completely glorious moment where the world is your oyster. Yes. And I think that means you have to find circles where you can process, where you can share your vulnerabilities, share what you're really feeling, share what feels like a dirty secret about maybe not wanting the path that you have available to you when others might think that's a dream. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's so important because you don't feel isolated at that point. And when you're trying to just work this all through internally in your head, you know, it becomes <laughs> an, an echo chamber of um, oftentimes shame and blame really fast. So 22 years in the world of law, in finance and tax, at using her phrase, I sold my brain to the highest bidder, which I, that's, that, that language is incredible to me. It, it's incredibly self-aware. Yeah. Uh, I don't know very many people who would admit that out loud. Yeah. I, and it's I, I a thought, very practical choice confronted with how, you know, law school's worth of student debt. It's, it's an eminently practical choice. And one I know a lot of other people make, they just don't talk about it that way. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important to actually highlight that because I feel like there's this push to tell everybody, like, go do what you love and find. And, and like, no doubt, like this, the whole body of work that we've, we've been working on around the Sparkotypes is about figuring out what is that thing inside you, but also, you know, in a very practical way, mm -hmm. the economics of higher education have changed profoundly from the time that where you and I went to school you know, where now a lot of people do make a very realistic and practical decision where they're carrying so much debt when you leave that you, you choose, even if you do know what lights you up, you make a choice based on how do I most reasonably service my debt? And sometimes that choice leads to you getting far enough into your career where then you're like, ah, uh, the sunk cost is so big. I'm just going to keep on keeping on. And that keep on keeping on can last for, for decades. Well, I also think, so yes to all of that. And I think the longer you distance yourself from something that you really believe is more fundamentally you, the less clear you are that that might really be the thing, right? You get, you're in a habit, you're in a pattern, you're in an environment with people, you know, you, you become accustomed to this choice. And, you know, some people find themselves at a point where they can take time and then they have a realization Others have 
a crisis or something unfortunate happens that makes them confront it. But I do think that, you know, 22 years is a really long time. It's no surprise they're feeling a little bit unsure, a little bit rootless. Yeah, um, completely agree. So so just going to mention that she finally reached this inflection point in 2018, where physically and mentally, it was just so untenable that she couldn't sustain it anymore. And I think that was one of those things that you're talking about. Oftentimes, there's something where we just hit a wall, whether it's illness or whether it's mental illness or whether it's just you realize, I just literally, you wake up one day and you're like, this is taking such a toll on me that I can't keep doing this because I'm I'm seeing what's happening and I don't want this to be my future. So 2018 happens for her. And then as she described, she starts to study well-being. She starts teaching yoga. She starts volunteering um, in domestic violence settings, becomes certified as an executive coach, and then starts out into that world. But And, and this is where I'm really, I want your, your lens. I'm really curious about. Then she shared, now people don't need therapy or people need therapy, not coaching. Talk to me about this thought pattern. <laughs> I think we can all agree that the need for therapy has escalated dramatically in the last couple of years. I know that my team and I have never been busier than we've been in this last two years. And that is largely because executives who are always dealing with challenging scenarios are dealing with infinitely more complex and more challenging scenarios. They're carrying a heavier load. And so it's not necessarily that they're struggling from a mental health perspective, as much as needing to sort and needing to process and having this safe space, because more than ever before, the senior leaders that everybody's turning to, they don't have a place where they can kind of drop their guard a little bit. You know, they've got family, they've got, you know, maybe aging parents, they've got uh, the well-being of all their employees that they're worried about. And so... Yes, absolutely. The need for therapy is real. And I'm always, and never more so than the last couple of years, very mindful of the, the delineation between therapy and coaching. But the need for coaching, in my view, with an executive population has never been greater. Yeah, I, I've seen the same thing from coaches who specialize in all sorts of different domains where it's more broad life questions, whether it's deep into the business world, whether it's relationships. I wonder if you see, and again, this is more your domain than mine, confusion actually about where that line is between therapy and coaching, what what coaching actually is and is not. And that leads to confusion um, about sort of like when and where and how uh, this, this thing called coaching is or is not appropriate. The people who blur the lines are the people who have are able to benefit from blurring the lines, sadly. There was actually an expose done a few weeks ago by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that talked about life coaches who were actually doing more therapy. And that's just dangerous. So, you know, coaching is really best done with people who are mentally whole, mentally healthy, able to move forward, access to their own sort of self-sufficiency and resources. Coaches, by and large, are people who want to help. They want to see other humans thrive. And I think it's very tempting for some coaches to to venture into territory where they really don't belong. So I think walking that line, being clear which side of it we play on, I think that again has has never been more important than it's been this last couple of years. And there have been many times when we've been approached to coach someone and quickly said, no, you know what, I think you actually might be better served hmm. by a different resource. And it's so important for the coach to call that. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. So maybe one thing to really draw out here in response to um, to the question is this assumption that now people need therapy, not coaching. And let's actually let's 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 offer the invitation to reexamine that. Yes. Now, whether she wants to be doing the coaching is a another question. Right. That's the next but thing. I, yeah, right. But I but I challenge the assertion that people only want therapy these days. I don't agree with that. That's not my experience. Yeah. And, and in fact, I know a lot of, we both know a lot of people in the coaching world and to the one, every single one of them has told me that the last two years, they have been busier than ever before. And these are people who've been practicing for decades often. Um, there's, there's more demand for the services than ever mm-hmm. before. There's another interesting, I think, distinction that that might be valuable to talk about, which is she shared that when she went into it, she got certified and she was exploring executive coaching. And then she also shared, you know, a little bit later that she's her spark type is advocate. So that's all about championing ideas, ideals, individuals, communities, and essentialists, creating order from chaos, which can I can see as that being incredibly powerful as a tax and finance lawyer. Like those mm-hmm. two pair really, really well. But her heart is in representing other people. And also it sounds like her heart is really in representing people who are not necessarily sort of like executive coaching people. It's an entirely different population. I wonder whether that's where some of the mismatch is coming from too. It wouldn't surprise me. When I first listened to her, it struck me that maybe she defaulted to the idea of executive coaching because it's perceived as sort of in that same wheelhouse as her career had been. Certainly she would have contacts there. It carries a you know, certain sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say cash say because that sounds egotistical, but there's something about it that might feel more logical and credible coming from a corporate finance background. Yeah. And so that word cache is interesting. I, I, you know, in a very past life, I had, I have a, a, a history as a lawyer as well. And I walked away to go into the well-being and, and entrepreneurship space. Um, and this was a lot, you know, way, 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 way back in my life. And also I had a much shorter amount of time at about five years in the practice of law instead of 20 uh, or 22. But one of the things, as she was describing it, I had this other script playing in my head too, because when I left, I was working for a big firm. I was making a fantastic living. I had the job that so many other people in this space wanted. There was prestige, there was status, there was all the stuff. And what I had to grapple with when I walked away from that was there's the, the ego in me was saying, I still want people to know that I'm smart and accomplished, you know? So, and I, and I didn't want it to, to be saying that, you know, I was like, like, no, just let that go. You can like focus on all sorts of other things and, and just do good work, you know, and people will come to know you in a different way, in a different context. And, but it was really hard for me. It took a long time to let go of the status that I had associated with my identity, with being sort of like a mega firm lawyer in New York City. So I was wondering whether part of the reason where sort of like the first step out for her also was more executive coaching, because you get to hold on to that status label a little bit longer, not realizing that, you know, like the deeper drive is, I really just want to be helping people. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. And I feel for her. I'm, and there's there's a lot that's tempting about some of the trappings that come with playing sort of in that market segment, if you will. And if it's not the thing that's really going to make you happy, then is it worth the price? Yeah. A little further on, um, Jessica mentioned, she, I'm, I'm using her words here. She said, I can be the oldest intern in the world and I'm <laughs> happy to do that. 
um, <laughs> which I thought was really maybe a turnaround from like that early first step out because that's saying, you know what, I will start from the ground up and just be learning. And again, that triggered my own experience because my first step out of law was making 12 bucks an hour to learn the fitness industry, wearing running shoes and tights and ratty old t-shirts because I just wanted to be an intern and learn it from the ground up. Um, and it took, it took a number of years to do that. And so I love that she's sort of like stepping into this mindset now saying, I am willing to go there. But then she followed up. She ended that sentence by saying, but I don't have a social work background. I don't have a psychological background or a psychology background or anything like that. So how do you start all over again? And I, that felt like she was discounting all of the work that she had just done to become certified and trained as a coach, as a yoga teacher, all these different modalities. Like, okay, so you can look at what you don't have, but what about what you do have now? What about whatever experience? What about 22 years of experience as a working professional problem, problem like managing teams and power dynamics and complexity and, and all. And it's like, there is so much amazingness that she could bring to anything that she does in any helping context. You know, I have had a number of clients over the years peak out, leave their fancy corporate career at its peak and take an executive level role in a not-for-profit doing pretty much the same thing they were doing in their corporate career, probably for 20% of the money, but doing something that feels more purpose-based and trading on their body of knowledge and experience and education. And so I warrant that she, if she chose to, and she might not want to anymore, but she's got a body of experience and knowledge, law school, corporate finance, tax. I wager there are not-for-profits that could get very excited about having someone like that on their executive team because of all of the experience and knowledge that she might bring. Um, And if she doesn't want to continue to play in that sort of subject matter space or functional space, then yeah, you're right. She's gone and done a lot of other things and brings a lot to bear into any situation. So I don't for one minute think that she would have to be an intern. I think she maybe hasn't tested her assumptions thoroughly enough yet. Mm, Yeah, it's such a powerful point. You know, when you look at the experience that she has, I, I almost wonder whether you could say, okay, so let me take all of that. And like you said, find another organization where it's really values aligned, where the culture there really, really lines up with the type of culture like where that she wants to be surrounded, where the people really, really well aligned and where they're in service of a person or a community that she really connects with and wants to be in service of. And then maybe can even split a role between doing, okay, so, so I'm going to step in And maybe you need help on the planning side or the finance side or the tax side or the strategy side. And I'm going to say yes to that. And I'm also going to say yes to spending a certain amount of my time here directly in service of those Mm -hmm. people. Like maybe there's a, right. Maybe there's a blended solution here, which gets to check all the boxes. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I know one particular example of someone who came out of a corporate career at a senior level, but not at the C level and went into not for profit at the sea level. And hmm. the condition, the the circumstance that they went into was that they were going to spend a lot of time out. It was a um, an international development organization. And they said from the beginning, I will be out in the field. I will be on the ground with what we're doing. And it turned out to be a, a really, really rewarding move. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I would imagine also, because going all the way back to the early part of the conversation, where she said she's the first person in her family to be able to make a decision which is not based on money. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would keep revisiting that and saying, okay, so it, it doesn't mean money is entirely off the table. It doesn't matter. But, you know, it sounds like she has a certain amount of freedom to choose. She it has, does. and not because it's just fallen into her lap. She's worked hard for decades to create that, that, that place. And what, what would happen if, you know, you drop the assumptions that, well, I'm not a this, I'm not a that, I'm not a that, so I can't do these things yeah. and just said, well, what am I? What skills yeah. do I have? And what if I said yes to these two or diff- three different things? Maybe temporarily on a project basis to try them out for the next three months to just see how, see how they make me feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a a skills inventory is a really useful exercise at every stage of your life, whenever you're considering a change. I also wonder whether this, you know, I'm the first person in my family to be able to make a choice. I wonder if there's some nervousness around telling her family that she's making a choice. And in my experience, most families want you to be happy. So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe there wasn't anything to worry about there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me also. Circling back to, so the, her, her spark type is primary advocate and then essentialist. Um, and I'm thinking about like ways that that can apply also. So it seems like I'm wondering how advocate and essentialist lines up with the notion of coaching or mentoring or helping. What I'm, 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 people can't see you, but I just saw you sort of like <laughs> shake your head um, right to left, not nodding up and down. So that what was, was going through your to mind? Warn you. It was more to warn you where I'm going with this. <laughs> okay. So, so what? tell me what's on your mind. It just doesn't strike me that executive coaching is a good fit hmm. because it you know, the advocate has such purposefulness and lifting up about it. Whereas, you know, executive coaching is, is more um, suited to the advisor where it's more of a, a, a partnership and uh, a guiding, if you will. So uh, it strikes me that to be playing a critical role in the lifting up of a team or, or, or an organization towards a purpose, towards a change in the world, that's advocate work. Yeah. And that jumped out at me for the exact same reason. I was like, a lot of times, you know, like the different sparkotypes, these impulses can be expressed in a lot of different ways and a lot of different roles. The advocate tends to be such an intense and focused one. Mm-hmm. And she's got tremendous training, you know, whether it was, you know, so her practice was not necessarily you know, like focused in this classical role, but you got a couple of decades of legal training behind you. And you know how to identify issues and you know how to shine a light on something. You know how to describe and tell the story of it. And I had the same question. I was like, huh, is is this possibly, you know, the trying to fit into a box because it seems like the logical way to help because everybody's doing it versus, and maybe that's where the friction is here. Maybe it's actually not that, you know, well, I don't have the social work background or the psychology background or the, maybe it's actually this, there's a deeper thing, which is just that. Maybe I actually want to be championing. Maybe I want to be shining the light. Maybe I want to be playing. Maybe I want to be helping in a different way. And those different ways are the, are the things that might be more interesting to explore as next moves. I think so. I mean, I think it's also possible that she's so conditioned to make choices based on, on um, learned education as opposed to mm. lived education. 
And so, you know, she's said many, many times over the course of the, her little um, audio that she wants to make the world a better place. She wants to leave it a better place than when she got here. And I, that's the clearly a drive that cannot be ignored. But I wonder whether her belief that you have to have a certain pedigree or a certain number of boxes checked in order to do a particular thing. I wonder if that's all wound up in having done that for the first 22 years based on the law school education. Mm, yeah, I think that's such a good point. I, I've people have disagreed with me, but I, but I've often believed that um, that really well trained law and experienced lawyers um, often really struggle when they try and step into the world of entrepreneurship or doing their own thing because what you're trained to do is imagine everything that could conceivably go wrong and then protect against it, which mm -hmm. is the exact opposite mindset that you need when you want to go out into the world and start your own thing. You need yes. somebody playing that role for you, mm -hmm. but you've got to be the one saying, but what is possible? Yes. So I think that's a really interesting point. I think we should probably start to wrap this up also. So if you think about any sort of like final thought or, or parting, like where would you focus um, now as, as we wrap this conversation? Well, her question was, how do you start over or, or start from scratch? And my experience is that people who are dealing with this level of uncertainty can sometimes benefit from what I would call a series of pilot projects. And so to your point, go find a not-for-profit and see if you can volunteer for three months or take on a board role or do something that dips more than a toe, but isn't a full plunge into the deep end and just see what that world is like and see what it feels like to play a meaningful, responsible role in an organization like that, because I, I think she'll be able to find those. I don't think she has to go looking for uh, unpaid internships or anything like that. So I would I would encourage a couple of maybe three-month projects um, and and see how she feels. Yeah, I love that. And and I would also, I would, I would add to that, um, when looking for those different pilots or projects, that make sure to fold in some where one of the central things that you do is in some way, shape, or form advocacy. Yes. And that you can also, if you really care about a, a person or a community, that coaching is not the only way to help lift them up. There are a whole bunch of different ways to do it. And if you choose the one that really feels like an organic expression of who you are, that may just start to answer a lot of the questions along the way. Well, Karen, as always, thank you. It's always great to be jamming with you. And it's always great to be um, to be able to share thoughts and ideas. And um, to our fantastic listening community, we will see you next time. Thanks for having me. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive in work and life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, 
I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.